Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Legendary on Wall Street, Ralph Schlossstein is the co-chairman of the board and co-CEO of Evercore, but has a huge, huge reputation and history on Wall Street. He was co-founder of BlackRock back in 1988. He was an investment banker at Lehman, started the firm's investment, uh, or at least interest rate swap business, and so much more. So we're thrilled to have Ralph Schlossstein joining us now. Ralph, thanks a million for joining. Talk to us about the deal landscape. We've seen so many SPACs raised since the beginning of the year, and so many sort of deals that we haven't seen in a long time, you know, not your regular mergers and acquisitions. What's going on out there? Well, there are two things. Number one, uh, M&A activity is back. Uh, It went on pause from uh, the beginning of March until probably the beginning of July with only very sporadic activity. And over the last three months, uh, if you look today at the level of activity and dialogue between CEOs, uh, it's quite a bit higher than and more intense than it was a month ago. And a month ago, it was higher and more intense than the month before. And the same would have been true two months ago. So there's no question uh, that activity is starting to return. And with respect to the SPACs, uh, you know, they have become essentially another way for companies to come public. Uh, They're really three alternatives now that a company can come public. One is a direct listing where they don't raise additional capital. They just list their stock. The second is a traditional IPO. And the third is to merge into a a SPAC uh, and become a public company uh, that way. And and SPACs have been, uh, you know, a lot of money has been raised. Uh, They have to do a transaction within a two-year period of time. There's some very qualified uh, business leaders who have raised this capital, and in many cases, they'll be helpful uh, to the companies that they buy to help them grow. Ralph, typically in an M&A scenario, uh, you know, a CEO and his or her board need presumably have a fair amount of confidence in their business model, in their sector, in their economy. So as I saw the $69 billion worth of deals announced on Monday, I kind of said to myself, where can that confidence come from, given what's going on in the world? What are you hearing from some of your clients as they think about uh, M&A activity? Yeah. Well, first of all, the, the transactions that were done this week were in sectors that were uh, either uh, largely or completely unaffected uh, by the pandemic. Uh, the uh, NVIDIA arm deal uh, in technology, the Gilead deal in uh, biopharma, uh, those are two sectors that, uh, if anything, certainly in technology, has benefited moderately uh, from this uh, stay-at-home or work-at-home uh, environment. And biotech is a long-term uh, growth sector. So uh, there's been, you know, the pickup in activity has been to a greater degree in sectors uh, that have pretty clear visibility as to the future uh, economic and uh, revenues and, and profits of their business. You haven't seen as much pickup yet in things like industrials where there's a lot more uncertainty. 
We are speaking with Ralph Schlossstein of Evercore. Ralph, are there enough private companies out there that would look to go public in this kind of environment to take advantage of all these facts? Well, the the thing that people don't realize is uh, if you look back 20 years ago, there were roughly uh, 7,500 public companies uh, and about 3,500 private companies of some scale, and I, I think it's a billion dollars or more in revenues. Today, uh, the reverse is true. There are 7,500 or so, maybe 8,000 private companies uh, and 4,000 uh, public companies. There aren't even enough companies to populate the Russell 5,000. Uh, so uh, the answer is the, the ratio of opportunity in the private company world uh, has literally reversed from uh, one to two to two to one. And SPACs are taking advantage of that. So, Ralph, there's some concern in the marketplace that SPACs uh, combined with maybe kind of the Robin Hood retail investor, the day trader, suggesting speculation is creeping into this market. It may not be healthy. How do you view that? Well, there's uh, no question, in my mind at least, uh, two things are true. Number one, uh, the stock market is uh, a bit ahead of the real economy. Uh, it's anticipating a V-shaped uh, recovery, which we certainly are, don't have yet. We're not back to where we were uh, pre-COVID by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, so one of the two, one is wrong. The stock market is wrong or the economy will catch up to the stock market. Um I tend to think that the economy is going to continue to do well. I'm not sure it's quite where the stock market will get to, quite where the stock market is. So I think there's some vulnerability there. And then you have a uh, a tremendous concentration of the gains in the stock market in a handful of stocks, which happen to be particularly appealing uh, to retail uh, investors. So these are great companies. It's not... It's not like the dot-com bubble where uh, anybody with 43 eyeballs could go public. Uh, but uh, these are phenomenal companies that are going to be long-term winners, but they're trading at you know, reasonably STEMI multiples compared to history. There is some talk of pivots at the moment, pivot to value and so on. And then there's also concern about everything the Federal Reserve is doing in the longer-term impacts. What concerns you out there, Ralph, and, and do you see pivots in the stock market? Well, I think the uh, right now we have a, uh, a stock market and an economy uh, that are definitely supported, you could say, propped up by uh, monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, I mean, people don't realize both the magnitude and the speed of what was done uh, by uh, both the uh, Congress and the president and by the Federal Reserve. You know, first fiscal policy, we had two and a half trillion dollars of stimulus passed before the first down quarter of GDP was reported officially. Uh, In the financial crisis in 2008, uh, we had $850 billion of stimulus, and it didn't get passed by the Congress, much, much less implemented, until the third quarter of decline. So this came much more quickly and three times the scale. 
monetary policy, the first week uh, or the first day, the Federal Reserve bought $100 billion of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. The most that they bought in the fiscal uh, fiscal financial right. crisis was $100 billion in a month. Yeah. So this is huge. So the Federal uh, Reserve has been there. Ralph Schlossstein, we're going to leave it there because of time. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Ralph Schlossstein, uh, co-chairman, co-CEO of Evercore, uh, giving us his thoughts on the markets, uh, equity markets, including M&A. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. Today we're joined by Claudia Sam, Director of Macroeconomic Policy for the Washington Center for Equitable Growth, also a Bloomberg Opinion uh, columnist. Claudia is a former Federal Reserve economist and creator of the SOM rule, a recession indicator. Claudia, thanks so much for joining us here. You have a fascinating column out. Uh, widening education gap may tear the economy apart. What did you find in your reporting? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on today. I really appreciate the chance to talk through the piece in a little more detail. Yeah, so I think the biggest thing I want to draw people's attention to is back to school, what's happening right now in our elementary schools, in our colleges, this is a pivotal moment for the inequalities that we've been living with and have increased over time in the United States. And we know this from the Great Recession. We are seeing this train wreck all over again. And we have to pay attention to those who are less fortunate, lower income, not in the fancy Harvards and Ivy League schools. They need our support right now. Yeah, I mean, some of us, I'm sure, have seen those really horrific and really sad pictures on Twitter and elsewhere of kids gathered outside places like Walmart and Target in order to try to use free internet because they just don't have it at home. This isn't just one problem, it's a a many-headed problem, Claudia. Is there any kind of even partial solution that could be implemented immediately? The situation that we are in is not inevitable. It is not set in stone. And yet, it will take money. The federal government needs to get money out to state and local governments. Those are the primary funding sources of education in the United States, particularly our public schools, our public colleges, and our community colleges, which are so important, are always underfunded. And right now, the, the... Municipalities just don't have the money for it. Congress can send the money, and they haven't yet, and they absolutely have to if we are going to get to a better place. Because really here, uh, it's interesting, a lot of the state and city colleges, they rely very heavily upon that kind of state and city funding. So what are they doing for this academic year? How stretched are they? Well, so if you think about just broadly what's happening at state and local governments, and the vast majority of them have balanced budget requirements, right? So they have to make what comes in, meet what goes out. Tax revenues plunged during the crisis. There are estimates that state and local governments are facing a 20% shortfall in their budgets for the fiscal year we're in now. Like, that is incomprehensible, right? So... A lot of the adjustments are just getting started. And what we've already seen is very painful. And the funding cuts, again, for places like community colleges that already had pretty tight funding, like it's going to get worse. And 
that that has repercussions obviously for those students and it has repercussions for all of us education is a big driver of shared prosperity right so if you hit another generation with uh, less educational opportunities a massive amount of student debt that doesn't you know come along with a great degree then like we're we're going to destroy a generation of students and we're really going to set back the potential of the whole economy so all students are affected as are all teachers but presumably those in lower income areas and also those in public schools as opposed to private schools are worse affected claudia so as you say the inequality of this is just so you know, unfair. What will it take? Will it take protests on the streets? I mean, what what can be done in order to get some help, some funding, even just some support, whether it's from other schools, you know, or other communities to these kids that are just going to get lost in the system? So, as I said before, money from Congress would go a really long way. I don't expect that money to come. It has been extremely frustrating to see that get mired down in partisan politics, but that is it is what it is. So I think at this point, it's going to take a lot of creative solutions, people being, like, thinking blue sky. Like, how do we pull this off? I'm actually speaking tomorrow at a conference of mayors, and one of my tasks is to come exactly with the question you asked, okay, so... Given where we are, what do we do? Like, how how do we get through this situation in the best way possible? And and it's tough, right? So it's blue sky thinking. It is trying to find ways to be more effective, efficient, making sure that you target the resources. As you said in the very beginning, there are students who don't, they lack the ability to go online, to go hybrid. You know, there are connectivity issues, there's access to high-speed Wi-Fi. There's also a lot of issues with parents who have to get back to work, right? And so there's a lot of complexity, there's a lot of need. Um, You know, but local governments, they know what their people need best. Like, in how to implement it, it ought to be coming local instead of federal. But the federal government should be getting them the money they need to do these blue sky creative. Well, let's hope uh, something happens very soon because we're already into the school year. It's a great piece. Claudia, thank you for writing it. It all needs to be said. Claudia Sam, of course, is former Federal Reserve economist, creator of the recession indicator, the Sam rule, and we appreciate her coming on. Well, when I was in business school many moons ago, we were taught that the purpose of a corporation, particularly a public corporation, is to maximize profits for shareholders. Now in the age of ESG investing, where there's focus on environmental, social, and governance, I think that's being expanded upon to maybe include more stakeholders. To talk more about that, we welcome Michael O'Leary, former economic policy advisor in the United States Senate and a founding team member of Bain Capital Social Impact Fund. Uh, Michael's also the co-author of a new book entitled Accountable, The Rise of Citizen Capitalism. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here. So again, maximize profits for shareholders or do corporations need to think about broadening that out to other stakeholders? I think what you're seeing right now is this changing focus from, I think we've had 50 years of this focus on the corporation's purposes to maximize profits for shareholders. And with the business roundtable statement last summer, the Davos manifesto coming out of the World Economic Forum last winter, 
you're seeing business leaders, investors starting to recognize that the purpose of a corporation can extend beyond just maximizing share price. How about uh, furthering that? What what would be the best way to go about things like that? Well, the problem right now is that if this sort of stakeholder capitalism mindset is, is winning the battle of ideas, it's losing the war of substantive action. So at the same time that you'd be hard-pressed to find many business leaders today who don't at least pay lip service to this idea of serving their communities, their workers, the environment, you're not seeing the, the sort of substantive action They'll ask you to push that forward. And I think the, the response to the pandemic was a good example where at first you saw a lot of companies pulling together, shifting from manufacturing perfume to manufacturing hand sanitizer or from luxury gowns to, to hospital gowns. Uh, but you're seeing all that start to pull back. And I think the, the kind of the, de- the decoupling of the financial markets from the real economy is just forcing a lot of people to, to question whether or not these pronouncements of stakeholder capitalism are actually showing up in their lives. Well, Michael, I remember thinking when I first saw that uh, business roundtable letter or statement from last year, my first thought was, unless you align executive compensation to these goals, some of these ESG goals, stakeholder goals, you're not going to get any substantive action. How do you feel about that? It's a a great point. I mean, business leaders, CEOs of our largest corporations are compensated mainly on stock price. And so to the extent that their compensation still requires them to maximize their stock price, their incentive structure is not going to change just by changing their rhetoric. Now, what I think business leaders are recognizing is that today, employees, customers, governments, regulators are expecting more out of corporations. And so the best way to maximize share price over the long term is by focusing on things like a deeper purpose on serving your stakeholders. But but following the, the roundtable statement, you had this kind of horrible postscript, which was the Council of Institutional Investors, which represents a lot of the largest asset owners in the country, released a statement of their own reminding the business roundtable, which represents CEOs, reminding those CEOs that CEOs work for shareholders. You know, in this shareholder democracy we have, where shareholders elect boards and boards appoint CEOs, CEOs ultimately have to, to reflect the interests of their underlying shareholders. And, and uh, the, the statement said, Accountability to everyone is accountability to no one and, and reminding CEOs that they work for shareholders. And so I think that's part of what's going to hold back real action here is until shareholders, investors, get on board with this sort of stakeholder approach to running companies, you're not going to see this sort of change They'll actually show up in the lives of stakeholders. Yeah, the centers are not aligned. I mean, it, it's partially why Jeff Ubbin went his own way and sort of after all these years started as, you know, another of his own shops in order to do ESG the way he wanted to, the way uh, he thought it should be done. Do we need more of that? Because if people are worried about having enough of a return so that they can retire someday, which is probably already going to be later than they ever thought before, then why should social justice come out of their retirement, if you like. That's the way they're going to look at it, right? This is kind of the traditional view that, that any focus on society and the environment must come at the cost, come at the expense of shareholder returns, that there is this trade-off. And I think what Oven is doing with Inclusive Capital Partners, what a lot of major private equity funds are now doing in launching impact funds, like a TBG or Bain Capital, where I had worked, or KKR, is they're saying, we can actually generate alpha by focusing on these areas because the sorts of companies that are going to succeed in the long term are the sorts of companies that are focused on the material financial risks and opportunities that come from looking at 
social and environmental issues. This is what you saw with the French food giant Danone that put social purpose into its corporate charter. It became the equivalent of a benefit corporation in France. And they weren't doing that to say this is going to come at the expense of profits. They're making the assessment that this is what was best for shareholders in the long term. Because we've seen this, this crazy transition where at the same time that average holding period for a stock has declined from eight years in the 60s to eight months today, the needs, as you said, of, of future retirees has elongated. You know, the median shareholder in America is 50 years old. They can't even access their 401k accounts for the next 15 years. And so what they need is capital markets to be thinking longer term, not shorter term. And I think inclusive capital partners, Jeff Evans Fund, a lot of these impact funds are recognizing that the best way to do that, the best way to focus on the long term is by focusing on stakeholders. So, uh, Michael, I guess I first heard about ESG uh, investing in was from Europe maybe 10 or 15 years ago, years before I really heard about it from uh, U.S. institutional investors. Are other parts of the world incorporating the stakeholder approach better than perhaps the U.S.? I think you are seeing that. You're seeing that Europe for sure is leading. Japan has always taken a slightly different approach. Uh, Germany, you'll have uh, more companies that are owned by a majority shareholder, less of the sort of intermediated capitalism we have in the U.S. where most companies are not owned by a majority shareholder. Europe, in many ways, has been leading the charge from the investing front. So United Nations Principles for Responsible Investing, which is a set of six principles saying that you're going to incorporate ESG in some way into your investing philosophy, is now aggregated $90 trillion of assets. Many assets coming from the U.S. or Asia, but for the most part, these are folks in, in Europe, in, in the Nordics, some of the major pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. And the problem is that at the same time that you're seeing that sort of commitment to these principles of, I'm going to integrate ESG into my investing philosophy, there's been some recent research coming from Aaron Unit, Kellogg, and, and others that shows that there's not much difference between investor who have, investors who have signed on to these principles and investors who have not. There's not much difference between investors before and after they sign on to these principles. So what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of commitment, which is a good first step. We're not seeing that followed through into different ways of actually investing. Divestment being one, one particular exception to that, where the divestment movement, where university endowments have right. divested from oil and gas. Michael, that's really grown. we'll have to talk about this again very soon. Michael O'Leary joining us there, author of Accountable, The Rise of Citizen Capitalism. Well, as we know, it's only a few hours to D-time, and that is the FOMC meeting and press conference. The Fed Chair Jay Powell will be getting up there along with all of his Zoom companions and talking about the economy. Let's bring in somebody who can give us a bit of a an insight into what we might hear today, because there does seem to be no consensus about what that might be for the first time in a long time. Danielle DiMartino Booth is CEO of Quill Intelligence and, of course, an columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, former advisor to the Dallas Fed as well. Danielle, for the first time in a long time, I'm hearing different interpretations as to what might happen today. It seems like it's it's been forever since Fed watchers got into the details and, and you know, try to forecast what the Fed chair might say. Yeah, I'm not sure we have Danielle. She might have dropped off the line, Bonnie. She'll be back uh, in just a moment. But Well, uh, Paul, I, I'll he, ask you the same thing. Yeah, yeah but it'll <laughs> be, you know, it'll be interesting uh, to see kind of what tone we get uh from Chairman Powell, because I think the market, you know, as we heard from some uh, Elena Shiletova from Bloomberg Economics this morning, maybe a little bit more explanation on what the thinking was behind uh, that inflation policy, i.e. Uh, the Fed might allow the uh, go above 2%. 
Right. And of course, there's always a statement and there's always a comparison of this statement and the previous statement. Will this statement have a whole new template to it? I mean, it's very unlikely, but there are likely to be different phrases, different, you know, uh, wording about the mandate, you know, and what the Fed will do, as you say. Yep. We now have Danielle, uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's back with us. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, uh, the Fed today, 2 o'clock with a statement, 2.30 press conference, virtual Zoom conference, I guess. What are you expecting? So um, in, in terms of the verbiage, we're, we're going to look for Chair Powell to, to, to kind of solidify what he said on August the 27th in Jackson Hole. And that is we're going to be seeing the, the deletion of the word symmetric, and we're going to see the replacement with the word average. And that's going to nod to the fact that the Fed is comfortable going forward. At least it's the narrative that they have with inflation running hotter for, for a period of time, as opposed to bouncing about that 2% target just a tenth uh, up, up or down around it. Again, they're going to look at it as being an average over time such that they can say, you know what, if it's 3% for a while, we're okay with that. So, Danielle, will the statement change radically? Will, will there be a whole new template for Fed statements going forward? You know, I'm not so sure about a whole new template. Uh, I, I wouldn't look to any major language changes. We have to bear in mind that this is the last FOMC meeting before the election. I, I think Chair Powell wants to try and stay away from being too terribly political. That being said, we do get the summary of economic projections today. We do get the dot plot. So there's a lot more richness in the information that we're going to be getting from the Fed in terms of where it sees the unemployment rate headed looking out all the way to 2023. I think the bond market is anticipating that they see these extra additive uh, data sets coming from the Fed to validate their, their view that we're not going to see interest rates rise for four years. Danielle, what kind of language do you expect to hear today, if any, about uh, the Fed you know, prompting for more fiscal stimulus out of Washington? Well, you know, I think that if you look at the other facilities that have been created, whether it's the commercial paper facility or the Main Street Lending Program, there's been some great Bloomberg reporting on that this week, the, the, the take-up has been anemic at best. And the Fed is trying to communicate that what they really can do, the tool that's the most effective, is quantitative easing. So in order for them to deploy this tool, it sure would help if, if we could get a couple trillion dollars in stimulus passed. And I think that Chair Powell is going to, as discreetly as possible, convey his continued plea to Congress to get back in, into negotiations and pass that next round of stimulus legislation so that the Fed can effectively monetize it. Danielle, when do we see inflation and will we get any kind of a suggestion from the Fed today that that, uh, they have an idea of when that might be? You know, we've been tracking at Quill Intelligence, we've been tracking uh, rental inflation, which is, of course, housing inflation, the largest input to CPI. That's decreased from a 3.4% year-over-year rate to a 2.8% year-over-year rate as we're seeing rents decline and evictions uh, increase despite uh, the the CDC theoretically covering uh, rents. So I think the bigger issue that's going to be talked about behind closed doors is the risk that we have disinflationary pressures building in the marketplace as we see this continued persistent nearly 30 million Americans collecting unemployment. So again, we have to bear in mind, since January 2012 when Bernanke first imposed the 2% target, the Fed has only hit that in 11 months. That's quite a, quite a long time without ever hitting that 2%. So I think the Fed is trying to talk up the inflation narrative, but I think their greater concern is disinflation at this juncture. Danielle, about 30 seconds left. How concerned are you about this 
Uh, you mentioned unemployment becoming you know, a permanent sense of unemployment for a larger number of people than maybe we initially thought. Well, I think that that is what the August uh, payrolls report dictated to us. We had a 12.4% increase. We haven't seen anything like that since the, since the Great Recession. So the permanence is definitely setting in. The longevity of people staying on unemployment, even though they're technically classified as temporary, has also increased. So these are things that Chair Powell has to know and they have to be discussing. All right, Danielle, thank you. That is Danielle DiMartino Booth, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist. And of course, Danielle is of Quill Intelligence as well. We'll hear from Danielle post the FOMC meeting as well. Don't forget that you can listen live to the news conference at uh, 2.30 Eastern, Paul. And of course, we'll be doing that. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have that coverage here. And as Danielle was suggesting, looking for just some subtle changes in language. Uh, it'll be also interesting to see, uh, as you know, to what extent... Uh, uh, the chairman will, you know, kind of make some comments about fiscal stimulus, the need for another round of fiscal stimulus. It seems like our good friends in Washington have kind of stalled here in getting that next round of fiscal you stimulus. You know, it's funny least. with Nancy Pelosi saying that they won't leave until there is another round of stimulus and yet no talks in sight. Yet no talks in sight. Absolutely. So, again, uh, that will be closely watched. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.